There's a saying from Tony Robbins that you can far overestimate where you can get in one year's time, but you underestimate and where you can get in three years to five mm-hmm. years. And it's really about building that foundation. And so we spent so much time building this foundation that it led us to scale farther than we thought we would. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. And today, our guests, we have two guests today, are Lee and Victor Leite. Today, we're learning about their journey from being busy, extra super busy medical professionals to getting into the fix and flip business back around 2016, continuing to scale their real estate investing using, again, fix and flips and the Burr strategy, which stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Basically a way to churn and burn and get a bunch of properties, but also add up your debt along the way, add up your good debt for real estate purchases. They moved on to that and started buying much larger multifamily, bringing in passive investors. And today we're going through their journey, what got them started, how they progressed along building their portfolio, how they got to the point where they realized we need to make a change in our strategy. We need to keep growing moving forward. And then what is left in the future, right? They achieved their financial goals. They exceeded their financial goals, but they've got so much more life left to live. We talk about what's down the road as well. They've achieved awesome things. They've cut down their working hours so much, you know, hit financial independence at a very young age, very impressive stuff. And they have much more ahead of them. You're going to learn a lot today, especially I know we have some medical professionals out there who want to get out of the grind, want to move forward. This may be the strategy for you if you're able to put your nose to the grindstone and work for it, but also maybe not. And don't give up. If not, there are many paths to invest in real estate. And this is just one way that was successful for Lee and Victor. So great lessons in this one. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call with me, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guests are Lee and Victor Leite. Today, we're learning about their journey for being busy medical professionals working 14 hours a day, split shifts, really incredible stuff, keeping them busy, starting in fix and flips, realizing they needed to change their strategy, adapting, moving forward, and reaching that sweet, sweet independence. Without any further ado, here we go. Lee and Victor, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I'm really excited to dig into our conversation here. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, your background, and your business, can you tell us about what you do, where you came from practicing medicine, and you know, we'll get into how you got there. So we're Lee and Victor Leite. We have a background of both practicing medicine, and we had a goal of generating passive income to just live a better lifestyle. 
So a few years ago, we got into fix and flips and we have flipped about 150 homes to date. Awesome. Along the way, we did a whole bunch of burrs and built up a large single family home rental portfolio. And through economy of scale, we decided to get into multifamily. These days, we both run a multifamily syndication company called 258 Capital. And we are focusing on um, larger multifamily acquisitions in Southeast Virginia. Awesome. Love it. And I want to dig into, uh, Victor, if you want to go ahead and add anything to that, you certainly can. No, she's, she's pretty much <laughs> hit the nail on Thought maybe you had something to say. Great. So uh, I'd love to dig into your experience of building the flipping business and your single family portfolio, and then get to any any catalysts or anything that that drove you to change your strategy or, or adapt your strategy. So tell us about building up that business and that initial portfolio. Yeah. So, you know, we... Originally, our, our breaking into the uh, real estate investing field was through fix and flipping. It was actually we our first home turned into our first house hack, and you know we did such a good job in renovating that property that we turned that into our first flip. And so we went, you know, from one uh, house we decided we we're going to try to do it again. You know, we're we're both you know systems based kind of uh, factual-based people. And we focus on on the details and, and developing systems. So we went from you know one flip to another and then two became four, four became eight. And we just kind of scaled in that direction, building teams, you know, developing systems and scaling. And you know, going through that processes of of the fix and flip side, we really learned a lot about smart strategies of investing of sheltering, you know, capital gains and taxes from the fix and flip side of building a portfolio for the longevity. You know, we're focusing on legacy building and wealth development. So we really went towards that route on, on the same, at the same time that we were doing the fix and flip and building our teams. Awesome. Awesome. So one of the big things that comes up when people talk about building a flipping business is basically how much work it is. And you can build all the systems that you want. It's still is a a job at the end of the day is what a lot of people find. Did you find that? Where did you wind up with it when, you know, there may have been some misgivings toward the end. I don't know how that went for you, but how did that go as you, as you scaled? So it really is an active job and we have never done the work ourselves. I know a lot of people actually go and fix those houses. So one of the keys to our success was really building up our teams and our contractors and the people around us to make this happen in a more streamlined fashion. But really with the ultimate goal in mind of building that passive income lifestyle, we knew that we... It couldn't be the only thing we were doing. So while we were building those flips, we used the same crews, the same teams, the same strategies in acquiring those to do the Burr portfolio. And those rental properties were what really helped us to shelter those taxes, generate that income, and was really the big turning point for us when we started to accumulate that portfolio. Nice. Okay. So... One of the things uh, a lot of people wonder or, or stumbling blocks that people run up against when they're getting started, whether doing flips or burrs or whatever, is access to money, access to capital. Maybe they have money saved up, a couple hundred grand, but realize it's not quite enough to create the, the passive income that they want. What did you guys do as far as finding the money goes? Did you start bringing in other people's money early? What did you do? 
Gosh, I mean, initially when we first got started, we didn't really have a lot of money, right? And so we looked into our savings accounts, we looked into other um, accounts we had invested in, and we started using um, strategies to pull capital out that we didn't know we had. So one strategy that we did utilize was taking a loan from ourselves from our retirement accounts, our 401ks. A lot of folks don't really even realize that they can do that. You can take you know, up to $50,000 from your accounts you know, and repay back yourself. And so when we started using strategies like that, we were able to tap into $100,000 for the both of us. We then were able to kind of you know, put that investment into our first investment property that we purchased. And that kind of just snowballed into just building capital and turning it over to another one and another one and another one. That's one of the strategies that we used early on that most people told us not to do, including the banks, right? But <laughs> we, we know that they're, they're in the, their job is to keep our money and not allow us to invest it. But when we really use those strategies, then we started learning more strategies such as the self-directed IRAs and things like that. It really allows us to, to, to stretch the money that we didn't really know that we had. So how did you start using, so you, you accessed equity by taking loans and, and other, otherwise utilizing uh, retirement account capital. Uh, how did you continue to scale that? I mean, you probably got longer term financing on a lot of these burrs. It's typically the strategy, but oftentimes people kind of hit a wall with that. You can't keep going further. So how did you bring in longer term financing and, and banks into the equation because they might they, they might discourage you and tell you not to do it. But at the end of the day, oh, yeah. we need bank debt on yeah. properties. Yes. Learning to leverage your capital is really key. A lot of our early burrs were really, really successful. So not only were we able to pull out the money that we had into the deal, but we were able to pull out money on top of that up nice. to $40,000, $50,000 in some cases. So we got more capital than we even started with. And then also we we started bringing in family and friends who saw what we were doing, saw how successful it was and started using other people's money to continue to scale. Great, great. So how did you incentivize them to invest alongside you on those properties? Because by my inference, or if I'm inferring correctly from what you're saying, we're not quite at the syndication stage, what we're talking, we're not there in the story yet. But when you started bringing them in, how did you attract them into the deals? We really just started telling people what we were doing and the type of money we were making and the lifestyle it was starting to give us. And people came to us. We never really asked anybody for money. They asked us, how do we get involved? Right. Yeah. And we, we were giving, you know, we wrote notes out for everybody and gave people uh, preferred rates of returns and similar to syndication models in a way where <clears throat> per deal, we were giving them a return and that they could partake in and once we really started doing a high volume set of like the fix and flip side, then it's just started turning over, over and over and over again. We did about, you know, 30 to 40 a year. And so that really increased the amount of investment capital that we started bringing into our uh, systems. Right. And the opportunity was, was that a lot of people, they don't want to flip houses themselves. It's a lot of work. <laughs> you have to find the deal. You have to execute the deal, mm -hmm. you know, so having them be able to be a part of that without really doing the work was really the incentive in itself. Absolutely. So I love that. So I want to clarify uh, the time frame around here. What years are we talking as far as you're getting started, but also making that transition more into burr investing and bringing on investors? What, what time frames are we talking about here? Talking about 16. Six, six yeah. Six, 2016, 17. That's when we really started turning up the uh, the volume and getting that, that the car 
going in higher higher speed there. Great, great. Okay, so you have been consistent since then. So that's that's great. And we've also talked about uh, you mentioned the Burr deal where you were able to buy the property, rehab it, and then refinance and and pull out more forty fifty thousand dollars more than you had. Can you tell us about what those tip, deals would typically look like? Was that back in that? 17, uh, 2017 timeframe. Let's dig more into that just to understand what that had to look like, because that's a very incredible and incredible story, incredible use case of real estate and debt and the way to create value. Yeah, no, that the first bird that we ever did, it was an off market deal that got brought to us. It was a little, uh, little house, three bedroom, one, one and a half baths. Nobody wanted it. You know, we saw it, we saw the location, school districts, and we saw the desirability for, you know, for it being close to water. And we said, you know what, Let, you know, we had, you know, we had a little money saved up and we said, no, we need to take an opportunity here. So we got that property actually for $50,000. <clears> we put $10,000 into it. Within four weeks, we already had it renovated, completed, and we had a renter in it renting it already for $1,300. Wow. And we turned it back around and refinanced that out for $155,000. And that was within six months. And so, and that property actually we still own to today. And actually, we've already refinanced it out again. <laughs> so we've already done it. It's even grown forward. The rents have gone up even further, you know, so that it's just, the, you know, you set the seed and it just continues to grow. And it continues to produce fruit. And that's the beauty and the strategy of real estate investing, you know? And that's how we really kind of was able to, to really scale in that fashion, just finding opportunities and going that route. Yeah. And those deals that we were finding, that was back between 2016 to 2019 for those initial burrs. And I know deals have gotten tighter and harder to find, but believe me, there are there still are great deals out there and really they're off market and you have to have those connections with those great wholesalers or be running an off market campaign if you're if you're going to find the really, really juicy ones. We can we can talk about that later. We found our apartment building off market. Awesome. I love it. Well, let's let's start working that way. I imagine at some point you're, you know, you're sitting back, you're saying, hey, we're doing great with these flips and these bird deals. We have this awesome portfolio, but you did make the transition to larger multifamily investing. Can you tell us about maybe misgivings that you had or what what really sparked making that change because you had a great thing going. Why not just keep going with it? Oh gosh, so the capital gains taxes killed me one year. You know, we were doing such a great job with flipping. I thought we had enough burrs to offset it, but no, we were paying a lot of taxes. And we really just needed more buying holds to take full advantage of those tax strategies. And I think we got to a point of about 25 single family homes. And even with property management, having them be spread out, it was still a lot for us to manage and keep up with. And we just really wanted these doors under one roof. So that's when we decided to go to multifamily. Nice. Nice. Okay. Was it some, I mean, was there an, a particular influential figure? Do you remember a, a transformational event? Was it writing that a capital gains tax bill? Was there somebody that came to you and said, hey, I have a potential solution for your problems? Like, let's get a little more granular if, I, if we can. You know, we're big, big picture people. So mm-hmm. we always love to write out our one-year, our two-year, our five-year plans and our goals. So 
when my daughter was born, I had this really big goal of retiring from medicine by the time she started kindergarten. So I knew I had five years to reach my freedom number. So really what we had to do was calculate all of our expenses and then um, all of the passive income that we needed to replace that. That's your freedom number. And we came up with that number and we realized, hey, you know, it's going to be a little bit difficult to get these hundred single family homes needed to really reach that goal. So how else can we do it? So we we came up with multifamily and we just worked backwards from there. We realized that we needed to get to this number. We needed to get to this number of doors and, and what's the fastest way to get there. Right. And the multifamily market, you know, it's so competitive, right? Everybody, everybody, whether it's, you know, local, you know, out of state, even international, because the U.S. market is more stable than their market, right? But we try to figure out how, what is our niche? Which way can we add value? And through the fix and flip side of things, you know, not a lot of things scare us. The value add to the things, you know, we really do well at taking something that nobody wants or something that nobody has dealt with for the last 20, 30 years or longer and just bring it up to today's standards to improve not only the net operating income of things, but also the, 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 the lifestyle for the community there, you know? So we figure that with our high volume fix and flip teams, which we run our own house contracting teams, like it's just rinse and repeat what we're doing on the fix and flip side, but just more doors. And so we thought that we can, we have our systems in place. Why not give that a try? And we started with some smaller stuff. We bought a six unit in a really nice little area and got that done, that full renovation done in less than four months. And we're like, wow, that's it. This is not <laughs> difficult at all. So let's just go scale a little bit further and went from, from there. We went from six to 62 and, and that was a pretty fun leap. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. So let's <laughs> dig into that a little bit. I think it's very interesting. You know, I'm up here in Richmond. You guys are down in, in the Tidewater, Virginia Beach area. And observing that market somewhat from afar, I've kind of seen that it doesn't seem to get quite the level of attention as many other... It's probably its secondary, tertiary market. I'm not exactly sure how you classify it, but how many other markets of that size, the attention that they get is much greater than you would expect the Virginia Beach area to get. I'm not really sure why that is. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no, yeah, we talk about that all the time. I think it's more of like this coastal city, um, considered a tourist city or military town. I mean, most people don't look at the factual numbers and kind of see like, well, yeah, there is there is military here. The largest base in the world is here. And we have a lot of government contractors and subcontractors here. Um, we have a lot of tourism that comes through here. And we have a lot of industries here, four or 500 industries that are here. And we have <clears throat> also the largest population in the state of Virginia, right here in Virginia Beach. So there is need for housing. There is need for this. It just doesn't get the hype or the you know, the top 10 lists for places to move to for probably the fact it's more of like a, more of a, what do you call it? An urban sprawl or a, a, a more of a suburban kind of play versus the larger cities itself. But it's, it's stable. It's stable. I mean, the ports here that, I mean, the Norfolk ports, one of the, that's actually the fastest growing port in the United States. If you wow. start looking at the numbers, they're taking, you know, since LA and Long Beach really got hit hard, Norfolk stepped it up. And if you start looking at the numbers, they've actually had the highest increase in, in demand. So things like that, we look at, you know, demand and need and potential future, obviously with Amazon coming to the state of Virginia, they have a big stronghold in the, in the Hampton Roads area with, you know, multiple large 
300, 600,000 square foot facilities for distribution to the, to the South. So we look at those things, the industries and the need. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a hype town. It's not a boom town. Very, I want to say steady as she goes, but that almost Mm -hmm. makes it sound like there's, there's no growth. There's nothing happening there. There is stuff happening there, but it's not these big, sexy, Hey, Samsung's building a $20 billion fab (laughs) facility in, in Austin. Okay. That's pretty cool. Tesla's moving to Austin. That's pretty cool. But Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads, Tidewater area does have some less, again, sexy industries, but, you know, we don't need to dig too much. Uh, yeah, no, head, no head like catching kind of events, but there's always opportunities to be made in any market if you know it well enough, right? And so that's what we looked at, you know. Nice, nice. I love it. So talk about this 62 unit and you're finding deals off market. Let's dig into that and how you, you know, how you lit the fire of larger multifamily. <laughs> You know, so like I said before, the multifamily market over the last few years has just gone bazonkers and offers are going left and right where, you know, the, in our opinion, numbers don't make any sense whatsoever sometimes, but people are still paying that. Actually, a lot of people are overpaying for it because whether or not they're not getting the same returns or whether or not they have investors to, 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 to have to respond to. And so we thought, you know, you know, after underwriting so many deals on market, we said, look, this is, this is nuts. We can't potentially put our investors' capital at risk like this, we need to start looking at other angles. Where are other people not looking? And so we you know, we ran a, our off-market single-family, off-market lead generation. So we decided, why can't we just do it on multifamily? I mean, who, who said you can't? So we did. <laughs> and we ran a, a program for about what, six months, which came up with a lot of different opportunities. But we found a, you know, a, a you know, a, it's really uh, the an, perfect scenario. Like scenario in the long-term th- owner, operator, older guy having some health problems who just really needed to retire. And it was, this property was his baby and he didn't want to let it go to just anybody. He wanted to make sure it was in good hands and mm. in local hands. And, and so it was a pretty atypical transaction right. in that we were sitting face to face with the owner negotiating with him <laughs> in his own office. And, you know, usually you have a broker in between you bidding things up, but this gave us the opportunity <laughs> right. to really, you know, plead our case and, and we've reached a deal. Right. Yeah. It was, it was wonderful. And we got all of the details straight from the person who's owned it for the last, well, the family owned it for the last 40 years. And so we were able to get the insides and out, you know, blocks away from the oceanfront area and, and learning from that. And just knowing that he want, he didn't want a developer or not a state person coming in and taking it over. He wanted someone local who's going to continue keeping, keeping that place, you know? So that's how it worked out. Nice. Did you, as part of your negotiations or acquiring the property, did you run into anything like, hey, this thing's fully depreciated. I'm going to have such a huge tax bill coming up on the, the seller side. They want to maybe work something out a little creative to either delay that tax bill or, or something like that. That's a great question. So that's an angle we really tried to go after, um, the seller financing angle. But no, he just he wanted out. So mm-hmm. we had to buy it with bank financing. Yeah. And the property, you know, our specialty is these distressed properties. We love to renovate things. So the property was distressed. So we had to get a little bit creative ourselves in the financing of it. Wow. Okay. So let's dig into fixing that distress of the, the property. What did you do? <laughs> yeah. So we acquired this property. It was 
70% occupied, 70% occupied. Yeah. Yeah. They had, he had, he had about close to 10 units that were in like inhabitable, inhabitable, right? No walls, no AC, no hot water, no nothing. It was bad shape. He had some units that he was using as storage for his stuff and other units that were like, had damages that he just didn't get to fixing it. And a lot of people were in there, I mean, renting for like like $500 a month, $600 a month and not paying on time. It was just all over the place with this place. But we knew what we could do. And so we went in there to take a look at the place. You know, a lot of people would run away from this, even if it's on market, you know, 10 units that need complete gutting out kind of things. But we saw that, you know, as an opportunity actually to add the value itself. And so we went in there, we knew what we're going to get ourselves into. It's going to roll up our sleeves and have our teams go in there and really push the value. And so, and we've, we've have so far, we've already, you know, renovated 50% of those units already. And it's already, the NOI is completely shot up in that place. And it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, we're increasing rents from an average of $700 to around $1,400. Whoa. <laughs> and that's yeah. conservative. <laughs> yeah. But when you take a place that has 10 units that are uninhabitable, you turn them from, again, uninhabitable to current finishes, that's going to have a huge impact on your income. Yes. Yes. To force that appreciation through the work that we know how to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So following the, following that deal, I know you had, you had more behind that. So what, what else is going on? So right after we closed on that property, we had been talking to some local brokers for quite some time and they said, wow, you just, you closed your first deal. That's awesome. Well, we bet you can close this one too. So they brought us another 75 units locally. They're like, we think that you're the buyers. And, and so really, you know, the law of the first deal, after we closed that first deal, that hardest deal to close, the next one just literally fell in our lap. And so we were able to close that one last week, 75 units in the same local area in Virginia Beach. Thank you. Yeah, it it, it was a little bit of a learning lesson just because of what recently has happened and the changes in our market and changes in lending. Mm -hmm. So when that bomb is dropped, you know, we scurry to find solutions and not run away from, from the opportunity because we see the value in it, you know? So there was some changes in debt, debt structure, uh, loan type, you know, scope of work, things like that, and, and, and structuring of the investment capital. So we were able to learn a lot from that angle. Nice. Awesome. So I don't want to, I feel maybe we buried the lead a little bit. I don't know, but <laughs> I want to get to, before we move on to three questions, I ask every guest on the show. I think what I think is the most important part, or maybe the second most important part is the effect that this has all had on your lives and have you reached you know your goals you mentioned you write down your goals which is a great exercise i love it but in looking back to 2016 when you're getting started and to now 2022 where do you stand we surpassed our goal right. by far <laughs> and gosh there's a saying from tony robbins that you can far overestimate where you can get in one year's time, but you underestimate and where you can get in three years to five mm-hmm. years. And it's really about building that foundation. And so we spent so much time building this foundation that it led us to scale farther than we thought we would. 
And so, yeah, for our lives, I mean, what that means is, is we found our freedom. I'm not working 14 hour shifts in a clinic. I'm not working holidays. I'm not working weekends. I'm not working evenings. I'm not missing putting my children to bed at night. And that's what's important to me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, there are times, you know, if, if, if any of your listeners, you know, practice medicine, they understand, especially if their partner also does. It's like there's days where I'm going in at night and she's coming in, you know, during the day and I'm running, you know, night calls and, and I can't be there when, you know, our little woman fold is crying at night and I can't be there for Christmas or, you know, there's all these things that come into mind that, you know, we had such motivation to get away from, you know, in healthcare, we're the we're the, as you, they call us the wounded healers, you know, because we focus so much our energy on helping others that we really don't focus our energy on helping ourselves and focusing on our own path. And so it's really great to have the freedom to do so now, right? Nice. We've, we've been able to make those choices on our, on our own time. Nice. I love that. And before we move on, I want to ask, you know, you set, set your goals. Can we ask about you know, your goals for the next two or, or, or five years, whatever the longer term period it is, because I found over time talking to so many people who have achieved so much, so many great things financially, many of them will get to the position where, hey, we could go sit on a beach for the rest of our lives if we wanted. And hey, you guys are at the beach, so you're even closer. It's even easier for you. <laughs> but they ultimately decide we have absolutely no interest in doing that. We want to keep working. We just want to work on the things that we want to work on when we want to work on them. So anyway, without prompting the question too, too much, what are the next, you know, five, six years look like for you? Well, we, we really fell in love with real estate. And what we want to do now is we want to give other people the freedom that we found. So we're working on bringing in our family, our friends, we're working on bringing in these other busy professionals to find this financial freedom that we found. And and that's really why we're syndicating now so that we can bring in our friends and families as LPs um, to kind of try to reach this level of success that we did. So looking forward in the future, we're going to continue growing. We're going to continue syndicating to keep building that wealth, not only for our family, but to support, you know, all of the loved ones that we have around us. Nice. Love it. Well said. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Best investment. Gosh, I think that that first, like that first bird that we did, you know, I talked about already, you know, it it's not the highest grossing investment we've have, but it was the catalyst and it was the 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 action taking steps that we did towards that that really got us to the next level, saying, hey, we're capable of doing anything that we want to do. And so that first investment that really pushed us into that that mindset of like, you know, legacy, wealth generation, reshaping our mindset, you know, that's really what got us going. Like 
like this works, you know? <laughs> so really when, when we start talking about it, it's just where we began. And that's really where we, we first kind of focus as our best investment in many ways. Awesome. Love it. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So real estate wise, we really haven't made a bad one financially, but the most painful one uh, I'll tell you about. So we bought this awesome building in a historic district and everybody loves historic districts, right? They're beautiful. They're walkable. They rent really well. They're popular. And we're really excited about this investment. The rents were high, but the building needed a little bit of work. So we went through the building. We renovated the building. We upgraded the units. There was a bunch of windows that were rotting out um, and leaking. So we decided to upgrade with with new double-hung vinyl windows to improve the energy efficiency and improve life for our residents. And we turned over that building pretty fast and raised those rents. And we thought we were doing such an amazing job. Until six months later, I get a notice from the city that we had violated the historic district and they didn't like our new windows. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So next thing you know, I'm filling out historic district applications. I am paying fines. I am in front of the city council. You know, it turned into a really big thing. And they wanted us to take out those windows and replace them with new custom-built historic wood windows. I guess the it, it was just a painful process. And so my advice to anybody who's listening is know where you're buying. Know those local, local laws and regulations. A historic district can just be a few blocks, but you really, really have to know what you're doing, what you're getting into, because no one's going to really tell you when you close on this property. You just, you just have to find out. Wow. That sounds like a painful one. Yeah. My favorite question. Oh, good. Good. All right. So you made it out. Great. Still have it. Still working. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Hmm. Say one of the most important things that we learned was the importance of building your teams and leveraging your time early on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I remember this early on, like when we first got started, like we didn't, we didn't think about the fact that we, we could scale so quickly. And so we didn't have all the team members around us in the beginning. You know, we didn't think about it. Like I remember going out there one summer and Lee's like six months pregnant and we're out there doing a bunch of little things and cutting the lawn in the beginning to get the property ready to, to for photos. And and then, you know, we went through all that and we kind of reflected and we're saying like, man, we can't be doing this. You know, we need to <laughs> be able to live a life that, you know, of, of what I call sunsets and palm trees. We can't be focusing on cutting the grass all the time. And there's nothing wrong with folks cutting the grass, but, you know, we focused on like, what is our time worth? Like, is my time, that moment of my time worth cutting that grass or paying a landscaper to cut it for me? And I can refocus my energy and efforts during that time for larger picture kind of things, you know? So we learned that very early on, you know, our time is important to us. Our time is valuable to us. 
you know, and you should definitely figure out what your time is worth to you. And then, you know, build your, build your plan around that. I love that so much. That one's made a big difference for me. And I know so many other real estate investors who that lesson in particular has made a big difference as well. In the short run, it might sometimes feel like leaving money on the table to pay somebody, but in the long run, absolutely. Think about your time, the value of your time, what you're selling your time for already, right? What, how do you value your time? Focus on that and hire people. Love it. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to track you down on the internet or anywhere else, where can they find you? Our company is called 258 Capital. You can find us at www.258cap.com. You can find us on Instagram at, what is it? 258 underscore cap. I'm on TikTok, on Facebook. We're, we're pretty much all over. We're doing a lot of educational content, a lot of day in the lives. So people know that we're not just all, all real estate. We like to have fun, especially with our families and, and events and things like that. And we like to really teach people how to find a balance in both, you know, and that's what we're, we're about. Nice. Nice. I love it. Well, thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple podcasts, five stars. If you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.